0: passage for this morning is the uh, opening 16 verses of Psalm 139. I hope you'll turn to that passage or you can read it there as we've done previously in the order of service but it's on page 521 in these Bibles in the pews. Uh, Why is it that Christians through the years have been so involved with starting adoption agencies and the crisis pregnancy centers and uh, hospitals and caring for the disabled and the infirmed the elderly, and one answer, certainly, among others, is contained in Psalm 139, because Psalm 139 answers four questions, and those questions are, does God know me? Is God close to me? Did God make me? And does God protect me? Uh, There's application here for all of us as, as we look at this psalm, that one Jewish scholar calls the uh, pearl in the crown of all the Psalms. I won't reread the passage, but we'll work our way through some of the verses just with some highlights. But it begins by talking about how God knows everything, that God is omniscient. When he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Uh, Do you ever think how dependent you are on the knowledge of others? All of us are dependent. uh, We're dependent on the On those who who treat us medically or, or teachers or if you travel and you're dependent upon the knowledge of those who would fly an airplane or do the maintenance on an airplane. We are dependent continually on the knowledge of other people around us. And yet God needs no knowledge from anyone else. He has all knowledge. He knows everything. And David when he says this in the Psalm Lord you've searched me it's the idea of to explore closely is the idea of digging through, of, of sifting something. And God explores; he he digs into you, he examines you through and through. If you've if you've been to a, a newborn nursery in a hospital, and you will see parents and. And grandparents and relatives typically gathered around, looking through the window, and they'll say, "Oh, look! She opened her eyes. Everybody, look! Look! Social media. Put it on. Quick! Put it on Facebook. You know, every little detail they are observing the the hands and the, the feet and the hair and who who does he or she look like or that smile? What what is? Look at their lips. They look like they look like your lips. And that's how God does with you all the time. He is sifting you. He is searching you, even in the mundane things. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Uh, I mean, assuming you're able, how many times a day might you and I sit down and stand up? I've never seen a statistic on that, but I imagine it's a lot. We don't even think about it. It occurs so often, and yet God is intimately involved even with the, the mundane activities and actions of your life. You discern my thoughts from afar. Have you ever had someone come up to you and go, I know what you're thinking. And you say, what? And they tell you and you say, I wasn't thinking anything like that. I've never thought of that. God is never uh, stumped with what we're thinking. He knows what you're thinking right now. Now that may be disconcerting. He knows what you were thinking five minutes ago, what you'll be thinking tomorrow. If you are in rebellion against God, if you are fleeing God, these are not comforting verses. But if you love God and and you want to serve Him and know Him, these are very comforting verses because God knows everything in your heart. He sees that. It says, You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with with all my ways. Uh, He he knows your words before you speak them. You, you may not be well known to other people. Maybe you are a type person who doesn't speak often. And when you do, you prefer not to reveal your thoughts or your feelings, especially. Uh, and others may say, you know, I have a hard time getting to know him. Or I, even your friends may say, I just, I just can't get close to that person. And yet God knows everything about you. How well does God know you? One writer said he could not possibly know you better than he already does. In verse five, he says, "You hem me in behind and before, and lay your hand upon me." It's the idea of of wrapping your arms around a person, of the idea of protection that God protects us from harms, from harm. And then in verses five and six, as David thinks about this, he 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 opens up in praise. It is too wonderful for me. It is is high. I cannot attain it. This is not threatening to David, but this knowledge of God is is wonderful. Now, let me say a word, I hope of encouragement. There are times that you've done things behind the scenes that no one ever sees. Maybe you've served in some capacity. You've helped out another person. Uh, Maybe you said something that was misinterpreted and, and you know that you didn't mean it that way. It just came out wrong. God knows that. It should give you, it should give us comfort and give you and me comfort that, that on, on the day when everything is revealed, the actions and thoughts and motives, then the true motives will be there. The good motives that were not seen by others or the, the intended word that didn't come out the way it was supposed to. God sees all of that. And then it's God near you, beginning in verse 7 through verse 12. Uh, is there a place we could go to flee from God the psalmist in verse 8 says if I ascend to heaven you are there if I make my bed in Sheol that is a grave you are there in the Hebrew Bible the you is emphatic so you could read it if I ascend to heaven you you are there if I go down to Sheol to the grave you are there I cannot flee from your presence. Wherever you go, his right hand will hold you, as one said, before you is God, behind you is God, above you is God, beneath you is God. He's never absent. In verses 11 and 12, you may say, well, I can hide from him in the darkness. As a, as a youngster, I grew up in, in North Alabama and in our, in our town, and in fact, through my backyard, there were caves. There were limestone cliffs and caves we could go in. And my friends and I would, would go into this particular cave, and, and it was very long. It had steps that had been you know, put there by the, uh, the, the Cherokees long, long before. And, and we would go down in this cave, and I can promise you, after you got about 50, 50 feet from the entrance, it was dark. I mean, really dark. You could not see anything without a flashlight or a candle of some sort. Our military has various forms of technology for night vision. Um, We have a type of night vision that is called thermal imagers and that shows up heat sources so that that people can be detected even in the dark, even through fog and through smoke. Then there's passion, passive, I got to get that right, passive night vision goggles that enhance whatever light is available. Well, God doesn't need any of that. We cannot escape His presence by fleeing from Him to some far off place or even by trying to hide in the darkness. So it begs the question, how does God know you so intimately? Why is He so near you? And that is because He, he carefully made you. Verses 13 through 18 uh, it transports us literally in, into the womb. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now, again, the you is emphatic. You form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. It wasn't mother nature. It ju- wasn't just a roll of the dice. It was a miracle. It's God alone who, who did it. And he He knit you together. That That word is used by Moses in the Old Testament referring to the making of the curtain that would be hung in the tent of meeting. So the idea was like an embroidery. And God has, like an embroiderer, has has knit you together. God alone, he says here, and none other. He originated your inner vital organs How did he do that? Well, on the 21st day after you were conceived, the foundation had been created for your brain, your spinal cord, your nervous system. Your heart began to beat at three weeks after conception. After just one month, your skeleton had begun to form, your nose, your eyes, your ears. Within five weeks of conception, your eyes, nostrils, ears, mouth, lips, and tongue were visible, and your teeth had begun to form. All your muscle blocks were present, and movement had begun. And by the sixth week, your adrenal gland and thyroid were functioning. Your fingerprints were in place by the eighth week, and they will last a lifetime. At three months, all your organs systems were present and functioning. That's what you look like. That's sounds You slept. You woke up. You tasted, you heard sounds, you continued only to grow until birth. During the fourth month of your life, you were six inches long, and you began to suck your thumb. Over those fifth and sixth months, you grew to be about 12 inches. Uh, Often you would sleep when your mother was her busiest. Loud noises outside the womb would trigger a strong reaction, and during the last three months of your mother's pregnancy, you grew to be about 20 inches and weighed about seven and a half pounds. Now today, we know details about the unborn child that the psalmist did not know. But he knew, like we often forget, that it was God who was controlling the entire process. And so in verse 14, he says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, the verse that Iris quoted earlier. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. We are a species of wonder. In verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. God was the artist making a masterpiece. Now, though it doesn't speak of life issues directly directly, you can see, I hope, why this passage of Scripture, Psalm 139, is often at the forefront with those who talk about uh, the issue of abortion today. Because in God's eyes, every human is a masterpiece of creation. And that includes the child with Down syndrome. It includes the, the senior citizen suffering from Alzheimer's disease. It it includes the unwed mother and the baby inside of her. And then verse 16 is the capstone. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Our response should be reverence and, and confidence, because God is near us. If you don't know Christ here today, then by trusting him, you become aware that God is with you all the time. He sees your thoughts. He sees your actions. He sees you're sitting down and you're rising up. He, he knows you from afar. He formed you. What I want to do for the next few moments um, is to, to give you more of Information. Uh, More information about how we find ourselves in 2020 where we are in America pertaining to life and especially the unborn child. Uh, I hope you, if you're a member here at First Presbyterian Church, if you come regularly, I want you to be educated about this. It is amazing that 47 years, that for the 47 years abortion has been legal in America at any stage of pregnancy, then it's amazing to me how many people know so little. And that's by design. Uh, You you don't pick up a newspaper and read what I'm getting ready to tell you. I want to give you some historical background. Um, Let me show you how we got to where we are today in America. If you look back at Western civilization that led to our being here, there have been what some call three great historical wars or Uh, phases regarding abortion. The first great war was in the Greco-Roman world and you see it for example when the Greek philosopher Plato wrote in his Republic a description of the ideal society and in that ideal society any woman over the age of 40 who was pregnant should have an abortion. Aristotle wrote that depending on the size of a Greek family beyond a certain number of children Uh, The others should be aborted any uh, more than that. It was fundamental to law in the Roman Empire, in the Roman law, that the fetus was not a human person. So, what changed that? It was the emergence of the Christian faith in the first century. The earliest manual of church life was called the Didache. That's a Greek word meaning teach. And it was written shortly after the New Testament. It prohibited abortion. When Constantine in the 4th century made the religion of Christianity legal in the Roman Empire, the Roman laws began to change likewise to prohibit abortion. There are those whom we call the church fathers. These were the writers that came along in the aftermath of the New Testament. Names like Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Ambrose, and then later Augustine, the great theologian of the early church, and then Thomas Aquinas. And you jump ahead to the Reformation in the, in the 1500s, and there was Luther and Calvin, and even into the 20th century with the German Lutheran pastor, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. All, all taught that the Christian faith prohibited abortion. So you might say, in one way, Christianity won the first war against abortion in the early church, at least in the Western world. Now the second war, what some call, I wish there was a better term because it's, it's really, that, that can be misleading, but the second phase concerning abortion took place here in the United States in the 1800s. We in America inherited the English common law view of abortion. And that common law view said the abortion is permissible up until quickening. That is, until the mother begins to feel the movement of the baby in her womb. But this concept of quickening was hazy, and it was ambiguous, and it made any kind of prosecution virtually impossible. And by the year 1840, to give you an idea, this church was founded in 1826, and this building was built in 1858, In 1840, in the United States, there were few laws on the books prohibiting abortion. And those that did exist were not enforced. So it's not surprising that during the 1800s, abortion in America greatly increased. The average size of an American family in the year 1800 was seven children. In 1900, it was three and a half children. It's estimated that between 1800 and 1900, one-fifth to one-third of all pregnancies were ended by abortion. And most Americans think this is something relatively new. It's not. It's not at all. In 1838, the New York Herald ran extensive advertisements along with other newspapers in New York City for abortion clinics. And who opposed it? It may surprise you to find that it was strongly opposed by the newly formed American Medical Association, the AMA, which was formed in 1847, whose first cause was opposition to abortion. The Presbyterian Church in the United States, that was the Southern Presbyterian Church, the denomination of which this congregation was a part. It made its first pronouncement about abortion in 1869. It called abortion murder, it urged those guilty of participating in it to repent, and it exhorted people like me, pastors in the pulpits of these churches, to address the subject and to warn people uh, about eternal damnation unless they repented. I didn't even read it to you. It's some of the strongest language I've ever heard. That was the what was passed at the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, United States, in 1869. You may also be surprised to learn that who also opposed abortion in the late 1800s was the feminist movement that said abortion was abusive to women. Now some say we are in the third great war with abortion. The Planned Parenthood organization, largest abortion provider in America, began quietly to promote it during the 1960s as birth control. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, Uh, who very much endorsed eugenics and that there were superior races and inferior races uh, and that you should do all you can not to allow the inferior races to increase. Margaret Sanger died in 1966, but in a book she wrote in 1920 called Woman and the New Race, she wrote how she opposed abortion. (laughs) Now, that's a shocker if you read anything about Margaret Sanger. She wrote, I assert that the hundreds of thousands of abortions performed in America each year are a disgrace to civilization. She, at that time, earlier in her life, said that she understood the difference between abortion and contraception, and she was very much in favor of contraception, but she said abortion is killing, so she opposed it until later, and then she later endorsed it. In 1967, the National Organization for Women endorsed abortion in light of what they said was the world population explosion. And the sad truth is that during the 1960s, there was only one firm, resounding voice that stood up on the biblical position. And who was it? It's the Roman Catholic Church. It wasn't the Protestants. We pretty much had cut and run by that time. By 1970, most uh, Protestant denominations, including the Presbyterian Church, uh, had said that, well, they had reversed their long-held positions on abortion. And all of that helped to pave the way for the Supreme Court decision in 1973, legalizing abortion on demand. Now, I wanna shift gears and give you two pastoral words. Anytime I preach something related to this, there's always a great fear on my part that it's going to sound harsh and legalistic and not emphasize the grace of God. So since 80% of women who've had abortions in America say they were pressured to do so, I want to say a word to those who've been involved with abortion. And in a crowd this size, there's probably not a family here, at least an extended family, that has not been affected by abortion. Whether you were the boyfriend or the husband who twisted that woman's arm, whether you were the father or mother who demanded it, or the grandparent who paid for it, or the person who encouraged it, or the friend who, who told the person they had no option, or the woman who experienced it, or the nurse and doctors who performed it. What about forgiveness? The beginning of forgiveness is confession. Confession. There are many verses in the New Testament and the Old Testament, but I chose 1 John 1, 9. We we mention this verse here often. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not just some of it. God says in Isaiah, through Isaiah, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God says as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. No sooner than you seek forgiveness through Christ than the words forgiven, free, and final are pronounced. And that's what it is. This is not an issue of of there can't be forgiveness Eh, or we'd all be in trouble but secondly I want to say a word to you that are younger which at my stage of life is getting to be the majority of the congregation it used to not be that way sometime in the future you may be in a situation where you feel your back is against the wall and there's there's no solution there's no answer there's no option and the only thing to do is disobey God in that that sense you may say I don't want to, but this is the only choice I have. And there are many of us here today that could say, I know how you feel. I've been in that situation, and I'll be in them again. And I want you to remember that God is working in many lives at that time when you feel that way. And he has a plan for these little ones, even tragic stories like we heard earlier from Iris with this child born of this 15-year-old that died soon afterwards. We don't know the answers for that. But it doesn't mean God is not, God, God is not intimately at work. We just we won't ever know why or how in this life. When our disabled son, Stephen, who's now 22, is hard to believe, 22, he was an easy target for abortion. I mean, in the, uh, the prenatal testing, I mean, the ultrasound revealed a small skull. And uh, Barbara was very concerned more than I because I was ignorant but we never discussed we never even mentioned the idea of ending this pregnancy why because of decisions we had made when we were younger the time to make to decide what to do then is now not then because then emotions and pressure and peer pressure and panic all set in so the time to make moral decisions and what you think is true and right and what you'll do is now before you're in that situation so it was never a point of discussion i had someone else after the first service tell me the exact same thing it happened in theirs it just wasn't an issue but i want to tell you that um, god is taking care of that guy and i watch in amazement sometimes barbara and i both do Uh, he can't fend for himself, can't defend himself in any way, can't talk, can't care for himself, can't feed himself. If you put him in the middle of this room, he'd starve to death over a period of time. And God has a plan for him that I don't understand, but he's got a plan for him just like he does for you. And he's looked out for him, and sometimes he's done that through some of you here in this church. So all I want to say is don't leave God out of the equation when you think there are no options. Don't think it's just you and everybody else is against you. No, God is not against you. So determine now to obey Him in those situations in the future. Rest on such promises as I will never leave you nor forsake you. In Proverbs 3 5 through 6, many of you memorized long ago, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he would make your paths, he will make your paths straight. Let's pray together. Our Father, we celebrate today hearing news of the 600 babies that were adopted into families. And now, in many cases, these people are adults and have children of their own. We thank you for that. That's, that's fruit of, the, of, of your work and the work of your people. And we would pray that you'd help us to value life, our own lives, first of all, to see that you are near us, you know all about us, you protect us, you made us, you wove us together in our mother's womb, and that we would celebrate the fact that, that you take delight in us in that regard, and that we'd celebrate forgiveness through Christ. We pray that in the coming days, in months, in our families, in the workplace, when there are conversations, uh, in political campaigns, when things are brought up, that you'd give us a word to say in kindness and in love that's discerning and put us in, in places where we can help people that may feel their back is against the wall and they have no options. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. you take your order of service, you see the words to the the doxology. Please stand, if you will, for the benediction, and then remain standing, and we'll sing together uh, the doxology. Oh, somebody asked me for the service. I'm supposed to to give a brief message at the March for Life. They said, do I need to come? Are you going to repeat what you said today? I said, not a word of it. Totally different. Now may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.